This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're back from a weekend included the Super Bowl. Paul Fame and some long trips driving the horse on the bus between me. Rick got sick, and Ron, uh, he's so sick he didn't return. And, and I mean it. In fact, I think... I think he's flying home as we speak, so he's not here. But Goose is, and Goose, I, I know how tough last weekend was on you, so my question is, who had it worse, you or Malcolm Butler? Well, Malcolm Butler had a better seat for the game than I did, but I wish he <laughs> had, I bet he wished he had been even better vantage point from the huddle and the flank than on the bench. You know, that was an unbelievable twist this game, leaving a guy who played more snaps than anyone on your defense all season on the sidelines. Well, listen, I want to tell all our listeners, truth be told, I mean, Goose and I roomed together, and, and after he came down with something, uh, I started to, but I want to give a huge shout-out to Tums and 13 hours of rest, because, I mean, that combination really kept me in play for Super Bowl 52. However, Goose, not so lucky. He was hurting Monday last time we saw each other when he flew home. Clark, it is always good to step off that plane in Dallas and return <laughs> to warmth. You know, those those sub-zero temperatures in Minneapolis, you know, I think took a toll on a lot of us. I think that's the coldest Super Bowl we've ever been at. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and since you mentioned it, the Super Bowl, and we will get to that, but uh, first I want to talk about uh, the Hall of Fame voting. Uh, we have the class of 2018 that includes a lot of guys you remember, or the listeners remember, including linebackers Ray Lewis and Brian Erlacher, both friends of the show, safety Brian Dawkins, also a friend of the show, wide receivers Randy Moss and Terrell Owens, Goose, friends of some other show. Uh, but the biggest flash <laughs> for me, Goose, was getting former Packers guard Jerry Kramer in. He's a member of the 50th anniversary team, and he waited 45 years, and hallelujah, and we also got former GM Bobby Beathard as a contributor, and good news, he's with us today. Yeah, it's about frickin' time on Kramer. This this yeah. same Hall of Fame selection committee voted Kramer the best, the greatest guard in the game's first half century. He was voted one of the two best guards in the 1960s. It's still mind-boggling that it took him 45 years to get a bust in Canton. You know, his absence from the Hall gave Canton a credibility problem, I thought, and at long last, the issue has been resolved. This is righting a wrong, and it was long overdue. Well, we're also going to hear today from Hall of Fame voter Kent Summers as we start our Best of the Rest series. That's featuring the best player not in Canton from each NFL franchise. And Ken, of course, is at the start of the alphabet with the Arizona Cardinals. But he's not alone. We've got NFL historian John Turney back with us to review the class of 2018 and see what grades he gives his class, as well as Houston's John McLean, who presented Robert Brazil. A lot to get to, but first we're going to a break. When we return, we'll review the class of 2018. This is the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're back with the Talk of Fame Network, where we're checking this year's modern era class with deputies. Not so much for cool jackets if we are IDs. It goes five new members with a total, a total of eight years of eligibility. I don't ever remember a class this young. You know, sadly, I think we've adopted a latest is the greatest mentality on this committee. You know, the three first-timers, a second, and a third. Anyone with age on the ballot, Joe Jacoby, Everson Walls, even John Lynch, the part of the, part of the process early in the cut to 10. Well, of course, See, I, missed, I missed the announcement on the rule that when you become old enough to vote, you become ineligible for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't know where that one came from. <laughs> well, l- ladies and gentlemen, it's Ira Miller. I was just going to introduce him. Was, Ira Miller's with us. He's a Hall of Fame voter. We've asked him to join us. And Ira was also sick last weekend. And uh, Ira joined the club. Everyone's sick. Are uh, you feeling better? 
I'm uh, yeah, I'm I'm on the rebound. I'm uh, actually going to have some some soup tonight instead of oh. applesauce and jello. That's pretty <laughs> Congratulations, <exciting>. small victories. <laughs> Well, Ira, um, first off, your overall impressions of this class and, and the breaking, the breaking from tradition by including four guys at two positions. I'm, I'm disappointed. I mean, I'm, you know, we've always, I've always been one of those guys on the series, and I think Goose is too to a large extent, that you kind of wait your turn uh, because there's a pipeline of, of deserving players, uh, some of whom haven't even gotten into the room yet. And, you know, we're just, we're just jumping guys ahead. And, and the wide receivers are a pretty good example. I mean, we know in all the talk going into the meeting, there were a lot of flaws with those guys. They had great numbers. Right. Neither of them ever won a championship. Certainly neither one of them were great team players. They both got shoveled around the league. And now all of a sudden they've been, they've been jumped to the head of the queue. Uh, we had, we had players in their final year of eligibility. Uh, Everson Walls being one of them, uh, Joe Jacoby, that apparently the committee just turned their noses up at. It's just sort of disappointing that, that we don't recognize that, that people who've been waiting a long time should be given a little extra consideration. There's a reason they're in that room in the first place. All right, that's the, the wider series. That, that bothers me. Bob Hayes waited 29 years, Lynn Swan 14 years, John Stallworth 10, Don Maynard 9, Art Monk 8, Tim Brown and Chris Carter 6 apiece. Why do you think the dynamic has changed in that room? Oh, boy. Well, that's a good question, Goose. I mean, I think the room has gotten younger. I think, uh, I think it's gotten polarized to a certain extent. I think too many people now view... Uh, Football is a pinball machine game. It's a whole different game than it used to be. And, and they look, oh, these guys got great numbers. He must be. I'll never forget, uh, and I won't identify him. He's not with us anymore, but he was a longtime voter. And one day, somehow, Bill Romanowski's name came up. Romanowski was linebacker, played a long time for the 49ers, the Raiders, the Eagles. And he said, oh, he played 16 years and never missed a game. He must have been a great player. No, he was a very average player. He just played a long time. And I, I think we're, we're not being very discerning. These receivers caught a lot of passes. But were they great players? Were they team players? Did they help their teams win championships? Uh, I think you've got to take all that into consideration. Yeah, you know, Ira, my fear is that we're becoming the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame because the point you raise is a valid one. I mean, they had great numbers, prodigious numbers. They didn't win championships. Isaac Bruce did. Isaac Bruce had big numbers, too. Not as big as theirs, not even close in terms of some categories. But he didn't even make the top ten. For the no, and he helped put, uh, what was it, two teams in the Super Bowl? Yeah, and he was a team MVP in St. Louis and a team MVP in his last stop, which was San Francisco. And he also made the play yeah. to win a Super Bowl. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, But yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a whole different game. Now. That's, that's what I mean. It's, it's, it's not the game that we grew up with. It's, as I say, it's a pinball machine game. Uh, and, and they're looking at numbers and not impact. And I, you know, the first thing I look at is a guy's impact. Right. And, and I'm yeah. not sure outside of Ray Lewis and, and Brian Erlock, although his team never won a Super Bowl, he was certainly a great player, and the Bears had a great defense all those years. They had, they had impact. These two guys, uh, the two receivers, uh, a lot of their impact was negative. Yeah, right. 
So, Ira, another question for you. We had okay. five offensive line, five offensive linemen as finalists, or, or one third of the class. So that's my quick math. Um, and you remember, well, you wouldn't remember because you weren't in the room. But early, we pledged to break up the logjam. We said we got to break this up. I mean, it's we got to get these guys through. You know what? We didn't. We have four as top ten finalists, which means each has support in that room. So, how do we move them forward, especially with a class of 2019 that looks top heavy? Yeah, I don't. I don't understand that. I mean, five. We we put five of them in our fifteen, and and the voting says that you know, well, they were seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, or whatever. That that not one of them. That that all five of these offensive linemen were worthy of discussion. Uh, and and we, you know what the numbers are. I, I, it's Goose. You probably know it much better. What is it? Seventy or seventy-five percent of the guys who get into the room eventually get into the Hall of Fame. It's a lot higher. It's like six, uh, like yeah, ninety higher. something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we eventually vote them in, but you know, we're we're passing around here with these five offensive linemen taking votes away from each other, and instead of saying, "Well, you know, we got these five guys, so let's put them in some order and say this guy's got to get in," and, and in my opinion, probably should have been Jacoby simply because he's it's his last year of eligibility before he falls into the senior category. Okay, all right. Has this become such an analytics and stat-driven process that all offensive linemen? Should pencil in his long shots? No stats. That's that's what I'm beginning to think. I mean, you know, we live we live in this age of fantasy football, and as I say, pinball machine scoring. And the Super Bowl is a pretty good example. Uh, you remember the, the great Dallas teams of the '70s, the Pittsburgh teams, the San Francisco teams that have been through Super Bowls. Uh, they won. Yeah, I mean, they were great teams. They could score points, but they all had great defenses. I mean, it, this this was shocking that. That these two teams that, that you could throw for over that you could gain over 600 yards on offense and still not win the Super Bowl, and this is a team with a great defensive minded coach <laughs> until Sunday. Yeah. Um, hey, Ira, um, I want to ask you a historical question. You've been covering this league a long time, longer than I have. Um, one thing I don't get is since you're talking about stats and numbers in fantasy football, what, why doesn't Edron James get more traction? I mean, he was a finalist two years ago, wasn't one last year. Then he returned last weekend, only to fail to make the top ten for the second time. Now, I always thought of him as one of the triplets in Indianapolis, and I mentioned that during the meeting, but it sure looks as if the rest of the room looks at him like uh, as part of the twins with Manny and Harris and the twins. He's just an extra wheel. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that one. And, you know, and, I'll, and I'll throw another name out there in the same category, kind of the same kind of player that you and I covered, Roger Craig, yep, who absolutely. doesn't even get into the room now. Uh, a guy who could do a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, was not a two thousand yard rusher, but was a two thousand yard player. Uh, and I, it's hard to, they, you know, they just don't seem to ignite the imagination of these guys. Uh, why? I have no idea. It doesn't make a lot of what goes on in that room doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, th- I think anybody who played before the year two thousand is is going to be a long shot going forward. And that was clear well, to me after that last vote. World pull those first guys, first time guys in. Yeah, that's certainly what it looked like this time. And, you know, we keep hearing about so-and-so and so-and-so are going to be new on the ballot next year and all these players coming up. And they just keep, they just keep, they just keep shoving, shoving players to the rear of the line that have been, that have been waiting one year, two years, three years, five years, ten years, twenty years. Uh, I, I just think we're too, we're too enamored with, uh, NFL films highlights and the games we see on TV and the players we saw last week. 
Yeah, what, what bothers me, and, and especially in Craig's case, and, and Jacoby and Wall say, well, we can bring them back as seniors. Well, no, we can't. We've got 50 all-decade players in the senior pool who have never been discussed as finalists. There are too many qualified and worthy candidates that have slipped through the cracks. It, it's not a log jam we can break up by bringing out one or two candidates a year. It's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, it's just a perfect example is uh, Jerry Kramer. I mean, how many times had he been voted down? But, I mean, he took up a, a voting slot for years and years and years. Yep. And uh, got overlooked. Hey, Eric, we've got to run here, but don't go anywhere. We want to bring you back in the second half of this program. So don't leave the house, okay? <laughs> Believe me, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Please stand by, as they used to say. Anyway, that was Hall of Fame voter Ira Miller. Up next, we put Super Bowl 52 in perspective with another league historian, that'd be pro football journalist John Turney. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're back with the Talk of Fame Network, or at least two-thirds of it. Uh, Ron is with us today because who's I'm not sure Ron's with anyone or, or anything other than a bottle of milk and magnesium, right? Yeah, he's not with us. He's not with us. He had to stay behind in Minneapolis because he caught a stomach virus that Really ripped through a number of people there, including, as you know, our own Rick Goslin, who was also sick last weekend. But he fought through it during the voting. Um, but one guy who wasn't affected was NFL historian John Turney, a pro football journal. Mostly because he wasn't there. And good luck, John. You were a smart man. He was back home watching the game on TV and staying out of the uh, illness sweep. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Hope so, John, everybody's feeling we- better. Well, yeah, we, I got a chest cold. Goose is still recovering. Uh, we're playing hurt. We had Iron just before. His wife was in the hospital with stomach virus. He's on Jello and soup. I mean, it was it really was rampant. And guys were dropping like flies. It was everywhere. So, anyway, I think we're recovering. But before we get to that game, uh, your take on the Hall of Fame class of 2018? Well, no one can complain about the uh, quality of player that was in that class the, from the seniors to the modern guys, to, to the contributor. These are guys that were really top-notch. There, there was nobody you could really say was even a borderline type of candidate that got in. Sometimes there's those kind of players who yeah, an argument kind of has to be made. In this particular case, I don't think that applied. Now, there were a couple I thought got in early, and part of that has to do with I, I, what I didn't foresee which was a circular firing squad on the four linemen in the top ten. Right. Out, of, out of four guys out of the top ten that were offensive linemen, none made it to the final five. John, were you surprised that we devote 80% of the modern era class to two positions? Yeah, I was surprised. It, it, it's not unprecedented because we've seen two quarterbacks go in before and, and things like that. Um, and, and, and the two... What I would yeah, what I would say is Erlacher to me was, you know, borderline quality of a of a first candidate. It's just what made him not look as strong is compared to the guy he went in with. When when one guy has eight or nine consensus all pro selections, another guy has four. One guy has two defensive players of the year of of the year awards. One guy has one. One has thirteen Pro Bowls. The other has eight. One has two Super Bowl championships. One has one Super Bowl loss. It pales in comparison. So I think that went in with there. And, and with Randy Moss going in at the same time, I mean, there's good and there's bad. One is the criticism, I believe, of the committee will go down in the next year compared to the way it was before uh, because of the T.O. controversy, let's call it. 
but with Randy Moss, he's the first of the the guys that are going to go in that have a had a serious ding on their resume. I mean, you guys remember Randy Moss not even trying in the 2000 NFC Championship game right, after the right. Vikings got down. I think what it was. 24 to nothing and ended up 41 to nothing. And then, of course, he quit on a year. It's almost like he's the first of the diva wide receivers that got in right away. Even though he had some spectacularly great things on his resume, he also had some serious negatives. And nobody wants to ever honestly talk about the negatives. But well, John, we, there's no doubt he's a Hall of Famer. Well, we, we were talking earlier about this earlier. It, it's, it's almost as if we're becoming the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame um, because it's just production matters. All they want to talk about is numbers, numbers, numbers. If that's the case, I can't wait till Wes Welker becomes available because in five or six years he had 112 or more catches and three times he led the league in receptions. So, you know, let's put Wes Welker in. It just, it just bothers me that that's all we look at. If that's all we look at, then get Deloitte and Tushin there and get the voters out because they can take the top guys at the list. Yeah, you could just uh... – feed the numbers into a computer and it, sure. and then you could get the guys out that, uh, that that fit the most so to me the human so the committee to me needs to be congratulated i don't think these were getting guy you know i think he did i think he did very well but i agree with you completely that you have to honestly be able to look at negatives no matter who the player is um john i was disappointed uh, the, the main thing is the guys who were in their last years jacobian walls and anybody with age was knocked out in the first cut. John Lynch, another guy, was knocked out in the first cut. It seems like it, it looks to me that if you played before the year 2000, you're going to have a tough time getting in this uh, Hall of Fame. Yeah, that would be that's disappointing as well. Unless there is an extraordinary reason to not put a final 15 guy in, I don't think there's. I don't think they should be passed over. Unless he's just clearly not qualified, and everybody agrees on that. And I don't think that applies to Walls, and especially does not apply to Joe Jacoby. And I think what happened is those offensive linemen had a bunch of guys supporting him, and it was just, I think everybody probably got six or seven or eight votes out of 48. So nobody had a clear majority, and, and they, it was like I called it in a column, a circular firing squad, and I think the yeah. first to go out was Joe Jacoby and Everson Walls. Right. Hey, John, and I hope it doesn't. I hope Mike Kinn gets a shot next year because there's a guy who played 17 years. His credentials are every bit as good as as Baselli and Jacoby, if not even a little. Or Baselli, yeah, and and he's never even had a look. And I don't know if he's going to be able to make it to the final 15 or not. But you start for 17 years in the league. It seems to, and you're all pro five times and so forth, seems like that should mean something. Hey, John, and, and we're speaking with John Turney of Pro Football Journal on the Talk of Fame Network. Um, you're someone who's always quoted in Hall of Fame meetings, and you were again this year. And as a league historian and someone who's been around the sport for decades, I, I want you to help us with putting this Super Bowl in perspective. Now, it wasn't long after Sunday's game that I heard the inevitable comment from member of this society that can't remember what happened beyond the last 30 minutes, and that's, get ready for this, John, the greatest Super Bowl ever. Now, from a historical perspective, I put Super Bowl three as the greatest simply because of the implications, the AFL getting on even footing with the NFL. And as far as suspense, I thought last year's 25-point comeback was right up there, overtime game. I thought that was tremendous. But this had four quarters of nonstop action. But it also had four quarters of matador defense, no defense. So where do you put this game? I didn't like it at all. Uh, I I think it seemed like a Pro Bowl game to me. 
I think the defenses, like you say, were just not very good. And it wasn't a matter of scheme. Maybe the schemes were, were great. I haven't actually broken down the film yet, and I'm going to do that since they just posted it today. But the tackling was awful. I think the it seems like Belichick's defense got fooled by things that they should have been able to handle, those, those RPOs where they would put an inside linebacker in a position to where do I play the run or do I handle or I drop back and, and take this little hook zone. It seems like they should have had an answer for those types of things. So I just wondered where the defense was, and I would put this in the bottom third of all the games, maybe the bottom fifth. Yeah, John, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a defensive guy, and I'm hard-pressed to say the greatest Super Bowl played was there was a complete absence of defense. I'm partial to the 2007 game with that dramatic near comeback, the throws by Eli, the catch by David Tyree. That cost the Patriots a perfect season. The stakes were much, much higher than last weekend's game. The, the 2007 Patriots were playing for a place in history and came up short. That's my game. Yeah, and I think I might still be partial to Super Bowl ten. Not only were there the great swan catches, but he was covered when he made. Mark Washington did not play a bad game. And you know that very well, Goose. I was there. And he played well. It was just one of those things where it's not like there were big plays because there was bad defense. But to me, that was a, a, a game that had offense, defense. You remember it had special teams with uh, Hollywood Henderson and the reverse and getting all those yards. To me, that was great football. Hey, John, what does this do for Nick Foles other than make him a household name? I mean, he's not the starter there. Carson Wentz says we know that, but he's – Carson Wentz is also recovering from a serious knee injury. So my guess is the Eagles probably keep Nick Foles a second year until and unless someone makes him an offer they can't refuse. I mean, I think otherwise he's an insurance policy. So if you're, say, someone like Denver or the Cardinals or the Jets, a team that needs a quarterback, do you make Philadelphia that offer or can't refuse? I really don't. I know he's, he's sitting on top of the world, but – Remember, I watched every Rams game in 2014, and there are times where he does not look particularly great. But in 2013, I think it was 2015 with the Rams, but in 2013, Foles looked unstoppable, and that's how he looked the last two weeks. And I think they were running a lot of those Chip Kelly-type plays where it was a quick read and a quick throw. And I think in those particular instances, he looks really, he looks, he can't look really great. But does he, does he, is he worth the first-round pick, which is what they are saying the price is? Oh, boy, I don't know. Maybe a late first-round pick. Yeah. But, you know, if I'm a team that's in the top ten, I'm not going to give a first-round for, for Nick Foles, no matter how many Super Bowl rings he has. John, watching from your sofa at home, what did you think of the Clement and Ertz touchdowns? The comments? What did Crazy. you think of the, of the touchdowns? The calls. The oh, they were the, uh, the Earth one was clearly a touchdown. The one where the running back caught the ball all year to me it was a touchdown. Every, as long as I've lived in in this life, it's been a touchdown. But this year, it has not been a touchdown. So that was a surprise that they let that one stand because the ball did move a little bit, and by the time he got it secured, the second foot went down, out of bounds. So I was surprised that that was not overturned, not because. That bobble was a, bit, a huge thing, but that's just how they've called it all year. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know what, John, and, and we've got about 30 seconds to go. I thought that was a plus for the NFL because they didn't get Alberta River on involved here. They let the players decide. And you can look at it and go, clear and 
Undisputed, no. Um, but, you know, what we looked at it and saw it without breaking it down tape by, uh, frame by frame, that was a touchdown, you know? Touchdown. Yep. And you're right. Very different what we saw this year. And check out my website where you'll see that on the touchdown where, where Foles caught it, uh, that was an illegal formation. Mention that website, John. Pro Football Journal. It's a blo- at Blogspot. Just Google uh, Pro Football Journal. You'll find it. <laughs> Thanks, John. John Turney. Thanks so much. That was NFL story. John Turney of Pro Football Journal. Up next, we sit down with Hall of Famer Bobby Bethard, one of the members of the class of 2018. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. What was 30 years ago that Sports Illustrated's Paul Zimmerman profiled our next guest in an article entitled, The Smartest Man in the NFL. And I don't know about that, but I do know he's the smartest man on this broadcast. Bobby Bethard, congratulations on reaching the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Well, well, thanks a lot, but I don't. I disagree with you. I don't think I would uh, be the smartest man in any group. <laughs> well, you are with this one. I'll tell you that you are with this one. <laughs> no um, way, no way. But, um, but no, be- thanks for the call. Oh sure. Well, before we get started, I must tell you, I- I'm honestly, I'm disappointed with you because I was there on Sunday. I knew you were in town. I was looking for you for a ten mile run that morning when it was zero outside, but I couldn't find you. I- where were you? I didn't see you for a morning. Oh, I went on a longer one, so I left earlier. <laughs> oh, that might have been. I thought I might find you on the zip line going across the Mississippi River. Oh, my golly. Uh, I thought about running. I thought if I was going on a run this morning here, oh, my Ooh. gosh. It was four below there this morning when I was there. I mean, it was, uh, yeah. it was cold. Oh, boy. So, uh, uh, not good for a Southern California guy. Hey, uh, Bobby, I, I don't think I've ever seen you in a sports coat, and I definitely know I've never seen you in a coat and tie. So how is the Hall of Fame going to make you wear the gold jacket? Well, I, I, have, a, I have a couple sport coats and a couple ties, but I guess you have to do it, so I guess I will. I will. That wouldn't be my favorite color, but uh, I have to wear what they tell me. <laughs> hey, Bobby, where were you when you heard, and what was your reaction? Um. I'm trying to think. What day did they call? I think I have it here down here. Um, Saturday. 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 Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I was. They were going to call between three and four, and um, I was just here at home. And uh, then, let's see. As I got the call, and then shortly after that, I guess Doug Porter, coach at Grambling, called me to say congratulations, and another guy, Ron Hill. Uh, I talked to him, so I had a lot of calls, but the the, the hall called, um, they said, at least I have down here, between 3 and 4 on Saturday. Hmm. Okay. Oh, wow. Good. And That's then we left the next morning at 8.20 for a flight uh, to Minneapolis. It's funny you mentioned Ron Hill. That's a name I haven't heard for a long time. I, I love seeing Ron when he was active and in the game. I haven't heard from Ron in a long time, but that's great you heard from him. Yeah. Um, um, I know when we were in the room there, the, the board of selectors went over your achievements as a GM. And we had Bruce Allen and Ernie Accorsi both quoted as saying they thought your greatest achievement was the hiring of Joe Gibbs. But my question for you is can you tell us – what about Joe, who was then an assistant with Don Coriel in San Diego, a team I used to cover? What about Joe 
made you think he was head coach material? Because uh, Ernie, of course, he said, you know, I, I didn't even know who this guy was. He picks Joe Gibbs. I went, where did he come from? But you found him out in San Diego. What was it about him that made you think, this guy could be a pretty good head coach? Well, uh, Coach Coriel was one of my favorite coaches, and I was a good friend of Coach Coriel. And then Ernie Zampezi coached on that team uh, with Don Coriel and Joe Gibbs. And Ernie and I were good friends. So I called Ernie and called Coriel, but I called Ernie first and said, Hey, is Joe ready? He said, Yeah, Bobby, he's all ready. He's, he'd be good. And I called Coriel and didn't tell him I'd already talked to Ernie. But I said, what do you think? Is he ready? And he said, yeah. And so I, I'd already had in my mind I was going to pick Joe, but I just wanted to hear it from Ernie, who was, uh, I trusted his judgment and certainly Coriel's too. So when they both said that, I didn't need any more. Hey, uh, Bobby, one other question here. Why did you take Joe rather than Ernie? Because Ernie was considered, when I was covering the Chargers, he was considered a head coaching candidate. And I remember Indianapolis interviewed him. But he didn't take the job. He said, I don't want to be. Well, the reason I didn't pick Ernie, yeah. Ernie said Ernie didn't have any desire to be a head coach. Right. That would have been the last thing Ernie wanted. And I knew that. Ernie didn't want. So Ernie, I think, didn't Ernie come with us for a while uh, just to help out the secondary yes. or something? But yeah. no, Ernie didn't yeah. want to be a head coach. Right. He would have hated it. He didn't want to have to do anything where he had to get up and speak in front That's of a right. group or anything. No, right. Ernie liked to do, doing just what he did. Bobby, why did the relationship with Joe work so well? Where did your authority stop and his begin? Um, we had a, a simple agreement. Uh, I get the players, I got the players, and you dra- and you and you coach him. <laughs> and he never interfered with the scouting and. I certainly didn't interfere with the coaching, but we would uh, get our boards all lined up before the draft, and I would, uh, you know, in those days you have tapes and films of all the players, and we'd let each position coach uh, uh, give them films or tapes of the players we really liked and looking at and get their opinion too. So we put it all together to put the players in the right, uh, their right rankings on our, on our draft board. Bobby was. I think was, you. Ha- I think you. Ha- I think you have to work. Uh, uh, at least every place I've been, you have to work closely with the coaching staff. I know there are places. Um, I worked with one coach that didn't last long. We, uh, but uh, didn't want the opinions of scouts. He only wanted to hear coaches, and I said that's just not the way it works. And uh, but um, every place I've been that we've had success, uh, they work well together. Hey, Bobby, how was your relationship with Joe when you're sitting there 0-5 in his first year? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, I think neither of us, the, the only person we worried about was Mr. Cook, <laughs> the owner. Um, it was just something because we made so many changes. That that was one of the changes that I still have articles from the the paper how they they hated us because that was the old guys that George Allen had, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And those guys were heroes to the fans in Washington, D.C. And for for a guy like me to come in and start getting rid of all the -the over-the-hill gang, they called them, they they hated us. And Joe, uh, my agreement with Joe when, uh, when I hired Joe was that we can't go with these guys. These guys, 
most of them can't play anymore. We've got to start. We got to. We want a team that, that we build through the draft, not to sign an old old players. And, and George Allen traded away all the draft choices, and uh, he had his way of doing it. But I don't think you can last that way. And uh, we had a different philosophy, and so we went with ours. Hey, Bobby, our listeners and the people who know us, they call us the Over the Hill Gang. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're speaking with Hall of Famer Bobby Beathard, the contributor inductee to the class of 2018. And, Bobby, I mentioned to you earlier about um, what Bruce Allen and Ernie Accorsi said, but Bruce actually went one step farther talking about your, your great achievements. He, saw, he said he thought the ability of you and Joe Gibbs to win three Super Bowls, and I know you weren't there in 1991, but Mark Rippon, your sixth-round pick in 1986, was, but that the Redskins' ability to win three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, none of whom is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame or in any Hall of Fame conversation, that that set you apart. Would you agree? Well, it's kind of uh, strange that um – None of those is in the uh, the Hall of Fame, but uh, you know what? I didn't think of it that way. But um, now that you mention it, uh, I honestly I forgot that we won with three different quarterbacks. But <laughs> that means the coaches did a great job. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you also won with three I, different backs. That was John Riggins in '82, Timmy Smith in '87. That was out in San Diego, and Ernest Miner yeah. in '91. That's pretty extraordinary too. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think. Even one of the quarterbacks that uh, got to playing part of that was Jay Schrader, right? Yeah, that's that's right. And you replaced Schrader. Actually, made a move to to put Williams, you know, in the starting lineup. Says Schrader, and then Williams, of course, had that big game in San Diego. But yeah, Jay. Schrader right, was and that game, was a, that was a, a a big move. That was an important move. And and the good thing about that, Joe had been with uh, with Doug Williams before, and that was a great move getting him. Bobby, I always thought uh, the great GMs and the great drafters, I judge them on what they did on the second day of the draft, what what you found in the later rounds. And I look at yeah. your drafts, the Barry Wilburns, the Rippins, the Mark Slares, the Daryl Grants. What were you looking for at the back end of the draft that you found so many good players? Well, um, I, I personally went around the whole country looking at players in colleges and looking at tapes and films and everything. So... I I thought that the late rounds in the draft were really really good places to get talent. Everybody knew about the people in the in the first picks, but the thing in the late rounds, uh, I don't think if you if you lined up everybody's draft board, that there'd be many teams that had the same players in the late rounds lined up the same way and. Fortunately, we we had a lot of confidence in our uh, our evaluations of those players, and uh, tried to fit them in, see where they would fit in with our our type of a, a team and offense or defense. But it it just worked out. We always thought we could get really good players late in the draft. And then I know when this it wasn't late in the draft, but when we took Daryl Green at the end of the first, uh, that's. I've been asked this question a million times, but I called Daryl to tell him we took him, and he said, why would you wait so long to tell me, to take me? <laughs> and I said, Daryl, we won the Super Bowl the year before. We, we didn't have a chance to take you. I said, don't get mad at me. Ask the 27 teams that passed you up why they didn't take you. 
Hey, Bobby, why why didn't you have Joe Jacoby on your draft board? Why what? Didn't you have Joe Jacoby on your draft board? Sure, we did. Well, he was undrafted. Yeah, he was undrafted. You signed him as a I know, but he was on our draft board, and we really wanted him. But the way you try to find as much, get as much information as you can going in the draft. And as far as we know, we didn't hear any team talking about Joe Jacoby. Wow. And we thought we can wait a little while for Joe Jacoby. But um, we we really liked him. In fact, if we'd have drafted Joe in the second or third or fourth round, we'd have been happy to get him. But we you, you kind of get a, put all the information together before a draft. You hear rumors. You hear everything. But we never heard Joe's name. And uh, going back up to his school, talking to the, their coaches and everything, it just doesn't it didn't seem like there was a lot of interest. And um, but you know we 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 liked him. And then when our uh, offensive line coach, when Bugle worked him out, uh, he was sold on him. And we thought, well, if if we we don't want to draft a player that. We bring in that the position coach doesn't like him, uh, but um, it worked out great. And if you have a coach like Bugle, Bugle does a lot for a player. He can really, he re- he really. I, I bet you Joe Jacoby would j- give uh, Joe Bugle a lot of the credit for his success. Hey Bobby, speaking of Joe Jacoby, as you know, he was a Hall of Fame nominee and a finalist in your class, but he didn't make it. Right. How disappointed was it to you that he didn't make? How disappointed is that? Oh, I was really disappointed. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, if Joe doesn't make it, why would I make it? And, but you know, he's you know, he's special. I, I know a lot of the guys that have made the Hall of Fame, and Joe certainly uh, deserves to be in there, in my in my opinion. That was See you there. Inductee Bobby Bethard. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Uh, this is Jesse Sofolu of the San Francisco 49ers, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, that smiling zebra, that'd be Gene Steratore, did such a good job at the Super Bowl that we've asked him back for one more drill. Gene? That's the two-minute warning. Yep, that means it's a two-minute drill, but we've got to catch this time. We have Hall of Fame voter Matt Mayoko from San Francisco, the guy who presented T.O., pinch hitting for Ronnie. So, Matt, here's the drill. Goose asks the okay. questions, we answer, and we go as fast as we can. Got it? I got it. Let's do it. Good, good. Hit it, Goose. What should we read into Tom Brady not shaking Nick Foles' hand after the Super Bowl? Uh, I mean, come on. Giselle was waiting. <laughs> Nothing. He didn't want to fight the hand that beat him. Who had a better weekend in Minneapolis, Jerry Kramer or Nick Foles? Uh, definitely Jerry Kramer. He will not be soon getting into motion. Given that Foles is 50 years younger, that'd be Nick Foles. Carson Wentz or Nick Foles? Uh, Wentz got engaged, so definitely Foles. <laughs> Goose, if you have to ask that question, go to the back of the class. Where does New England's invisible man, cornerback Malcolm Butler, wind up in 2018? Uh, probably a backup singer for his favorite vocalist. Rick Ross going to those concerts, missing curfew. <laughs> in somebody else's doghouse. Goose is in exactly Mike Gaines. Should the Detroit Lions have any second thoughts about hiring New England's alleged defensive guru, Matt Patricia, as their head coach after that Super Bowl debacle? Absolutely not, but they should have second thoughts about that beard. <laughs> Considering they play New England and Tom Brady, yes. 
Now that Josh McDaniels has taken his play card to the Colts, can Indy expect weekly explosions of 600 yards of offense like the Patriots in the Super Bowl? Well, with any luck. Not unless McDaniels brings Tom Brady with him. Bill Belichick has lost all three of his coordinators this week. Which of the three will he miss most? Definitely his stylist. You know, the guy who coordinates his sideline attire? <laughs> uh, Tom Brady. Oh, wait a minute, Goose. He didn't retire. At 40, how much is left in Tom Brady's tank? He will be fine as long as he doesn't trip and fall on a wooden stake. <laughs> Let's see. He just set a Super Bowl record of 505 yards passing goose. I'd say the tank is full. Does Rob Gronkowski retire as he has hinted after the Super Bowl? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, after all, I'm sure he has a, a job waiting for him in the field of astrophysics. <laughs> Not unless Tom Brady retires first. That's the end of the that's the end of our first app, but stay where you are. We're going to visit with the Hall of Fame's class of 2019 when we return. And here from Hall of Fame voters, Ken Sumpers, as our Best of the Rest series begins, this time in Arizona, as well as another Hall of Fame voter, the Houston John McClain. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two. We're talking about number number flying solo today. My boy is alive, but he's not well, and he's flying home from Minneapolis where he caught the same stomach virus that floored Rick on Saturday, as well as another Hall of Fame voter, Ira Miller. Now, Ira didn't make it to the vote. Rick did, but that was a tough day, Goose. You toughed it out. Clark, that's what we do. You know, I was I was presenting both Jerry Kramer and Everson Walls, perhaps yeah. for the final time in that room for both guys, so... There was too much at stake for me not to tough it out. Yeah, you did a great job. You played her, did a great job. Um, but since we talked about uh, Minneapolis earlier and how cold it was, what did you think about Minneapolis as a Super Bowl host? And I, and I know you saw much of last weekend from your hotel room or our hotel room, <laughs> but are you sold on cold weather sites, Super Bowl genu- uh, venues in general, and, and Minneapolis in particular? Yeah, I think the NFL should go north once every five years. Okay. And every time we've gone north, whether it was Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Detroit, the host cities have done a terrific job hosting the game. You know, the NFL is a national game, not just a southern game. The, the right. northern cities deserve their chance to showcase game just as much as the southern cities. You know, because I always used to laugh when media would complain about cold weather sites because 90% of our time is spent indoors interviewing players, coaches, or GMs anyway, or maybe Justin Timberlake, I don't know. But um, you never really get outside until the evening. In fact, if you're not doing room service, which a lot of people are, you're staying in. But it was cold. <laughs> it was <laughs> Those cold. brief was interludes, cold. that, that uh, half was, a mile walk over to, to the press center, that was, that was cold, Clark. <laughs> it was cold. When I left this morning, it was minus four. Uh, speaking of Justin Timberlake, you're a Hall of Fame voter, so am I. Does he make it as a first ballot choice? Everyone else did. Four Super Bowl halftimes. Well, if he was a wide receiver, he would be. Uh, <laughs> my, my first ballot would pr- still probably be Whit- Whitney Houston, Prince oh, McCartney, yeah, right, U2, right, right. Michael Jackson, and let Justin right. fall in after them. Yeah, I'm not sure who would make mine, though I'll tell you, Goose, I thought Lady Gaga was pretty good yeah. with the uh, halftime show last year. I don't, I, I don't know one thing she said, I'll be honest, but uh, that performance, God, it was great. And I remember Prince, too, singing in the rain, and it wasn't purple, of course, in Miami in 2007. I thought that was pretty cool, too. Uh, this was good, but we're not talking the Hall of Good. We're talking the Hall of Fame. Where's up with people when you really need them? <laughs> We don't have up with people here, but we're going to tap into the Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, when we return. Looking at what's ahead for the class of 2019. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Hall of Fame.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we had Hall of Fame voter Ira Miller on with us in the first hour, and he couldn't get enough of us. So we asked him back. We said, Ira, come on back, you know. And Ira, I just want to inform you that since we last spoke, you know, about an hour ago, there have been no first ballot Hall of Famers inducted. Not yet. State. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Ira, when we spoke in the first hour, we broke down the Hall of Fame's class of 2018, and you told us you were going to get your popcorn ready or something like that. Um, anyway, I'd like to look ahead to what's next, and, and what's next is the class of 2019 that features, among others, safety Ed Reed, tight end Tony Gonzalez, and cornerback Champ Bailey. Now, true story. <laughs> I've already heard some voters back in Minneapolis the day of the Super Bowl refer to all three as first ballot Hall of Famers, which frankly astounds me because I thought Ed Reed was the only slam dunk. So tell me, what's going on here? I mean, do we no longer respect the queue and, and guys who've been waiting? Well, we're going to have to have to get in line first behind Nick Foles because, I mean, he <laughs> definitely is a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, no, seriously, I, I just... I hate to sound like an old fogey, which I guess I, well, half of that is right. I don't, I don't consider myself fogey. But, you know, I just think we, we don't pay attention to history. It's too, too much attention now is paid on the committee by the people in that room to what happens last week, last month, last year, and the last couple of years. And, and there's no thought. Uh, you know, there are probably people in that room who might not know who Chuck Noll and Bill Walsh were. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's just, not enough respect is being paid to guys who, who played this game uh, through the years and have been waiting their turn patiently while we sort out a lot of deserving candidates. Okay, Ira, Ray Guy was the greatest punter in history. It took him 23 years to get into Canton. Paul Krause, NFL's all-time leading interceptor, took him 14 years. Charles Haley, five rings, took him 11 years. How and why have we lowered the bar to let in so many so quickly? You know, I don't. You know, I don't know that there. Are, I know part of it is, and you know, I'm going to sound like an old guy now, but the committee seems to me have gotten a lot younger, and I don't think there's the institutional memory that that there used to be when you and I got on that committee, and we were the we were the kids among. People who've been covering since the '60s and early '70s. Right. Uh, there's a seem to be to me to be a lot of people in that room now who haven't who don't have that institutional memory, who don't know that history, who, who weren't around, who don't remember those players, who don't remember how great some people were, who don't who don't understand that how long some people have been waiting for that phone call, and they're deserving people. Yeah, you, 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 you and I, you and I can measure Ed Reed against Ronnie Lott. We can measure Tony Gallons against John Mackey, and most of the people in that committee yeah. can't. There's no historical perspective. No, I mean there's, uh, there's guys who can't even you know can't even get a sniff. We talk about you go back to the '80s. I've got my own little campaign going here because I think Roger Craig has been overlooked in the role he played in the 49ers dynasty. But the, the point is that the players of that era are just are being overlooked. Uh, we just yeah. we just chunted them off to the side and said, "Well, who are the new guys? Let's put them in. Let's move on." Yep. Uh, yeah, it's funny because when, when Ray Guy's name came up, right. 
When Ray Guy's name came up, Ira, um, and Goose mentioned the greatest punter of all time, I remember somebody throwing numbers at us and, and analytics. And, I went, and he said, have you seen these numbers? And, and I remember saying to him, I saw him play. That's all I need to know. I saw yeah. him play. You know, so let's get – what are we doing here? But anyway, like us, I'm going to go to another position. You're old enough to have seen Matt. Well, wait, let me just Wins- add, throw one more. If you, if you were voting today, you'd look at Johnny Unitas' numbers and Sal Rose, he stunk. He 50% yeah, that's right. completion. Thank you. He didn't belong in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think he ranked something yeah. like 77th in passer rating. I don't care. I still yeah. play. And I wanted him to have the ball with two minutes to go because I knew I was going to win. Um, but I want to go to another position. And, and one of uh, Unitas' favorite receivers, John Mackey, so that would be tight end. Mackey, Ditka, Winslow, you saw them all play. They waited years to get in. With Mackey going in his 15th year of eligibility, Ditka is 12th. I heard one guy say, Gonzalez, quote, revolutionized the position, unquote. Except he didn't. I mean, Mackey, Ditka, and Winslow – we're way ahead of him. So why the rush to put in a guy like Tony Gonzalez? And, and where do you see him among your all-time tight ends? Well, I see him as a, as a wide receiver called a tight end. I mean, that's right. mostly what he was. He was a pass catcher. He was, not, he was not a tight end in the what used to be the traditional definition of a tight end. Uh, he, was a, he was a wide receiver with playing tight end. He might do a little chip block or something every now and then. But he, but he wasn't a blocker like Mackey and Dick. It's a, it's a different position now. Yeah, yeah I'm a, yeah, I'm of the belief that they're, they're no longer at tight ends. These guys are all receivers. Today's tight ends are in the slot and on the flank more than they're lined up uh, with their hand in the dirt. I think they should drop yeah. the tight end designation, put all these guys together with the, the wideouts, and judge them as receivers. You think I can get any traction with that? No, but I'll tell you why. This thing has been going on. This thing has been going on. It's it's a trend that probably dates back 50 years. Because I can tell you, when I worked for the Associated Press in the 1960s, and I talked to the people doing the All-American team, and I said, there's a guy by the name of Ted Qualick as a tight end who's a hell of a player. He's going to be a great pro. There's nobody any better. Well, I don't think we're going to have a, you know, put a tight end on, on the All-American team. It's just, it's going to just have receivers. Jeez. Yeah, Jeez. that's where you are. Yeah, we, we uh, actually had a, another guy who should be a candidate. That was Mark Bavaro on our, our uh, show. I think it was the last yeah, year. Mark Bavaro was a tight end. Yeah, yeah. And, and he can't get any traction. He can't get any traction. Yeah, I mean, God, he was... I mean, I, I don't know if you remember remember that game with the Giants on their way to the Super Bowl when they were down 17 nothing, oh, And sure. he caught that pass in San Francisco and ran over about 32 guys. Yep. Yep. Started the Giants on their way to the Super Bowl. I mean, that's just one play, but he was a great player. It was. Uh, Ira, you're a great subject for us. Thanks for the time, <laughs> as always, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you. And get well. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, yeah, Ira. You, you guys, too. Feel better. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. That was Hall of Fame voter Ira Miller, and this... Well, this is where our Rick Gossam makes the case for someone he thinks is Hall of Fame worthy, and that someone is... Former Kansas City wide receiver Otis Taylor, who we wrote about on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, this week. Gooseman, the floor is yours. Clark, the 1960s produced a tale of two Taylors. One's in the Hall of Fame, the other's not. Charlie Taylor played in the NFL, Otis Taylor did not. Charlie Taylor's in the Hall of Fame, Otis Taylor is not. Charlie Taylor was a different type of wide receiver by the game's 1960 standards. At 6'3", 210 pounds, he was a jumbo wideout, almost a tight end on the flank, but with speed. He could be as physical with cornerbacks as they were with him. Otis Taylor was the Charlie Taylor of the AFL. He was a fourth-round draft pick by the Kansas City Chiefs in 1965 
And at 6'3", 215 pounds, he was even bigger than Charlie Taylor and just as fast, just as physical. He quickly became the go-to guy in the Kansas City offense, helping the Chiefs win two AFC championships and a Super Bowl. After the AFL-NFL merge in 1970, there was a two-year window when Otis Taylor was the best wide receiver in football. He went to his first two Pro Bowls in 1970-71, was a two-time first-team All-Pro. In 1971, he was the only player in the NFL with 1,000 yards in receptions. But Otis Taylor has never been discussed as a Hall of Fame finalist. But the Green Bay Packers realized his greatness after watching tape of him in preparation for the first Super Bowl. Said Green Bay's Hall of Fame cornerback Herb Adderley, quote, Just from watching him on film, I knew Otis Taylor was one of the best wide receivers in the game. But seeing the guy play in the field and seeing him in person are two different things. Otis was bigger, faster, and quicker than I thought. He is as good as any receiver I ever covered. He was like Charlie Taylor. AFL was a pass-driven league in 1960s with Namus, Kemp, and Dawson flinging the ball all over the yard. The NFL was a run-driven league with Jim Brown, Jim Taylor, Gale Sears punishing defenses on the ground. Yet there are twice as many wide receivers from the NFL in the Hall of Fame in the 60s as the AFL, 6-3. to three. If you judge players by today's inflated stats, you'll find better Hall of Fame candidates than Otis Taylor. But if you judge players by their impact on the game during the era they played, Otis Taylor is long overdue his discussion as a Hall of Fame finalist. Gooseman, quick question. Otis Taylor or a guy with a lot of stats? Charlie Hennigan. Uh, stats, I'll take Hennigan. Impact, I'll take Otis Taylor. Otis Taylor scared corners. He scared corners in the AFL, and he scared him in the NFL. Oh, another question. Ira Miller or Ron Borges? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking Ira today because he's up and walking. Ron, uh, not so much. Anyway, up next is another Hall of Fame voter. That'd be Ken Summers, the Arizona Republican. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this week marks the start of our Best of the Rest segments, where we begin a 32-week series on the best players not currently enshrined in Canton. Now, we're going to make stops in all 32 NFL cities and talk to Hall of Fame voters about the single greatest omission from each of their towns. And our first stop... It's at the top of the alphabet, so that would be the Arizona Cardinals and Hall of Fame voter and great friend, Kent Summers. Hey, Kent, good to see you last weekend. Of course, much better to talk with you again. Um, you escaped the flu in Minneapolis because not many guys did, including the Goose Man. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. There was a lot of it going around. People brought it home, and I'm lucky to have escaped, and I'm lucky to be back in Arizona where it's 80 degrees, and I actually mowed my yard today. Oh, just rub it in, <laughs> rub it in. We, yeah, we didn't see any yards. We just saw a lot of white up yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. So, Ken, who is the most glaring omission from Canton in the eyes of the Cardinals faithful? You know, it, probably in the eyes of the faithful, they would say, you know, someone like Roy Green. I think realistically it's a guy named Duke Slater, Fred Duke Slater, who played with the team in the 1920s, one of the first African-American players in the NFL and a fabulous lineman that, that really ought to be on the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned him because Ron's talked about him before, Ken, and it, and it seems like he was the Jackie Robinson in the NFL a couple decades before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. And I, and I know Ron strongly believes, as I said, he's written at least one, maybe two uh, items on our website. Um, he's a big, big Duke Slater fan, fan. And I know 
he wonders why a guy was a Hall of Fame finalist back in the 1970s and 71. I think he was both 70 and 71. Then he disappeared. I mean, he disappeared from the ballot after being a finalist twice. And, and I know, Kent, he played in Chicago, and that was two cities ago for the cars. But how high a profile does he carry in that building now that the cards are in Phoenix? I mean, does anyone know the name or they remember him, pictures of him around? Anyone remember him? No, zero. Absolutely zero. I, I didn't know about him until a couple of years ago when I when I wrote a book, A Hundred Things Cardinal Fans Should Know and Do. And, and I came across uh, Duke Slater and doing some research, and I'm, I'm thinking, wow. And then I read the stuff from, I mean, it might have been from Ron that, hey, he should be in the Hall of Fame, and he was actually right. considered at one time. I, I went to Michael Bidwell, president of the team, who, who runs the whole team. I said, hey, what, have you heard of this guy? Because, you know, they redid their facility a couple of years ago and really did a nice, you know, historical montage and a lot of artifacts, et cetera. And he, he goes, I have no idea who you're talking about. Tell me about him. So that's, that's how far off the radar this guy is. And then, you know, his story is, is one that would be a, you know, a great book or movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard the name of Duke Slater. No, it's Duke Snyder. He played for the Dodgers. Uh, Duke Slater. <laughs> Yeah, his first name's Fred, and, and <laughs> what's interesting, too, he's from, he's from Clinton, Iowa, where Cardinals running back David Johnson is from. Really? And I, wow. I asked David, wow. at wow. Same, same high school. I mean, it's a small town, there's only one high school, and I asked David, I said, you, you have to have heard of this guy, right? He had no idea. What? But he was a guy who really? started playing in, in, in football in the, you know, in the teens in 1913, 1916 or so, and his, his dad was a minister, didn't want him to play football. Uh, finally, his mom let him. They snuck around, and, and finally, his dad relented only with one condition. All they had, they had enough money for either cleats or a helmet. And so Dukes later chose cleats. And then for most of his career, played without a helmet all through college and even a little bit into the NFL. Wow. You know, Kent, the, the best story of Slater's greatness I know Ron loves to tell. In 1927, the NFL banned black players from the league, you know, as baseball had already done. So eight of the nine blacks playing in the NFL disappeared. The one exception was Slater. And only after the NFL determined that he was not a black player, he was an Indian. That's how talented he was, regardless of color or nationality. His team wanted him on a field. Yet, as you may, he's not even in the Cardinals' ring of honor. Will that ever be addressed? Wow. I don't know. I, I I would think so, you know. But you know, a couple as like you said, as a couple of years ago, Michael Bidwell didn't even know about wow. it. So I think Holy too, it's, you know, as as his name gets out there a little more, and if he were to be, you know, put forward by the uh, seniors committee, obviously that gave him great consideration. I mean, he, he was only six one, two hundred fifteen pounds, and and according to some of the articles back there, one of the best, if not the best lineman in the league who played for, you know, 10-plus seasons. And back then, you had to really love the game right. to play that long. And, and plus, Duke Slater was a really bright guy as soon as, you know, during while he's playing for the Chicago Cardinals, while he's playing professional football, he's, he's going to law school. And he ends up wow. graduating, you know, and, and, and getting his, his uh, law degree and later becomes a judge in the Chicago area. Yeah. Jeez, holy smokes. Well, Goose, you're on the senior committee. Is there any buzz about it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, whenever Ron and I are in the room together, there's buzz about Duke Slater. I I, I think I could see him. If there's an amnesty class, I'd I'd find it hard to believe Slater would not be included in it. Oh, okay. Well, I hope so after hearing this. Um, Hey, let's move on to a couple other candidates who deserve discussion. One's John David Crow, who was an all-decade selection from the 60s at fullback. 
yet never been a Hall of Fame finalist. Uh, I know he played in the shadows of Jim Brown and Jim Taylor. I remember him because I loved the Cardinals back then. But I remember him as a complete and dominant back. Um, but apparently the, the Cardinals don't. I mean, he's another guy missing from the Ring of Honor. So how's he held in that building? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard his name mentioned, and especially when, when Bill Bidwell was, was a, a sound mind and body, was in good health, he, he talked a lot about him and, and you know, would love to regale me about the, the, the old days. I guess maybe maybe it's because he only played five or six seasons for the Cardinals that he's not, you know, more recognized as a Cardinal, but certainly a, a, a great player and, and, and well-known. Okay, let's talk about a more current Cardinal, a guy you mentioned, Roy Green. You know, this guy did it all for the Cards back in the 80s, starting a wide receiver, starting a cornerback, return kicks. He was a two-time first-team All-Pro, and, and frankly, was Larry Fitzgerald for this franchise before Larry Fitzgerald. Yet, you know, he, he is a guy in the Ring of Honor. In what regard is he held in that building? Very high regard, and, and they just put him in the Ring of Honor two or three years ago. But Good. what a fabulous receiver, um, you know, as part of the part of the team when they moved from St. Louis to Arizona. One of the few guys in the league, and he, he, Roy will tell you this, that he could run step-for-step step with Darryl Green. Now, I don't, wow. I don't know that for sure, but Roy likes to say he was the fastest guy in the league at the time, and, and he was a fantastic receiver and great speed. And as, as you said, Rick came into the league as a, as a cornerback and you know was fooling around on offense a few times, and Jim Hannafin, Jim Hannafin the coach, then started playing him a little bit on offense. And then, and then pretty soon that morphed into a full-time deal. And, you know, two-time All-Pro, four or five, a thousand-yard seasons, very impressive resume. Yeah, there were, there, were, there, were, there were games he played both corner and wide receiver, two-way guy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, an incredible athlete. Maybe the best athlete the Cardinals have ever had. I think maybe Patrick Peterson might, might challenge that. But, it, you know, through Roy Green's career, certainly, and until recently, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better one. Hey, Kent, uh, Goose just let me a note to ask him about Marshall Goldberg. Now, is he the star of the ABC series, the Goldbergs? Is that the guy? No, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I, I know who he was. He was a great back for the Cards in the late 40s and twice has been a Hall of Fame finalist as a senior candidate, but he was voted down each time. Uh, do you have any feeling about him? Is there any buzz about him in the building? Yeah, very much so. He was one of Mr. Bidwell's favorite players, and, and it really hurt him when he wasn't chosen for the Hall of Fame when he was – you know, not chosen those those couple of times he was put forth. A, a fabulous player, one of the many players, you know, came through in the 40s that the war cut short his career. He came, with great story, he came back from the war. He's on the train back, and he's not feeling well, and he, he's losing weight. And it, when he gets back to Chicago, he's diagnosed with testicular cancer. So he, so he has surgery and, and then comes back and plays a couple of more seasons. He wasn't at his peak then, but what an incredible, tough man. I had the good fortune to, to talk to him many years ago when I was doing an anniversary story on the Cardinals and just a, just a real bright guy. And, you know, I, I guess it's, it's his fairly short career that maybe the selection committee had a problem with and why he was rejected twice. Hey, Kent, just out of curiosity, when you did your top part of things Cardinal fans should know, what number were Slater and Goldberg in your book? Yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, Slater, I just looked. We didn't. I, I didn't have complete editorial control, <laughs> but uh, Slater was <laughs> about sounds like a 81. disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't blame me. Slater was about 81, and I think Goldberg was in, in the 40s. But, you know, that includes not only players, but... Yeah. But games and championships and and certain things that happen within games, all all of those things. So, you know, no re, no reflection on those guys uh, well, at all. Wasn't Goldberg a member of the last championship team? He was nineteen forty seven. Certainly yes, was. Sir. I mean, he wasn't 
wasn't a star at that point. I mean, he was better, you know, earlier in the 40s before the war, but still a still a pr- productive two-way player. You know, Kent, the last player we want to talk to you about is Pat Tillman. Now, he's a guy who, as you know, walked away from the NFL at the height of his career after those 9-11 attacks, lost his life fighting for his country in Afghanistan. He played only four seasons, but his number's been retired by the franchise. Is there a case that can be made that he deserves a higher honor in Canton? I, I mean, he can't. I, I don't see him getting in as a player. I mean, it seems the rules are pretty strict, and there have been a lot of NFL players who served in the military and even served during wartime and were in combat. I mean, not to obviously take away from anything Pat did and his selflessness, but as a player, a guy who got every bit out of his ability. I mean, you look at him and and just athletically, and you would think, you know, how is this guy in the NFL? But a very productive player, but, but not a great player. And, you know, if he would have come back, Instead of joining the service that year, Adrian Wilson was ready to replace him in the lineup. Tillman would have still been on the team. But if you base it just on football ability and what they did between the lines and the influence they had in the locker room while they were playing, I, I don't see how you can put Pat Tillman in. I, I, you know, I know that the Hall has done some special exhibits with Tillman and, and, and been really nice to him. And, and, you know, and there's, there's some things in there about Pat Tillman that are really worthy of seeing and, and maybe if they create some other kind of category he should be he should be in. I wanted to ask about one other guy and that's Larry Fitzgerald. Oh wait a minute, he's not eligible. Oh, in fact not yet retired. Oh well. Hey hey Ken, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Uh, anytime guys, thanks for having me. Thanks, Ken. You got it. That was all the thing go to Ken Summers of the Arizona Republic. Up next, stop your data. You listen to the Talk Fade Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, when you look at what happened last weekend, there were several oddities. Uh, as we mentioned, very young class, Pro Football Hall of Fame, four guys at two positions, and more defensive players than offensive players, which is rare because if you watch the Super Bowl, there was no defense played that day. In fact, there was so little of it that we thought the Pro Bowl had broken out, but... There were 91 passes for almost 900 yards and six touchdowns. There was only one sack, just two turnovers. Losing team didn't punt. Also had about 6 billion yards in offense. Four players had 100 yards in receptions. And all the running backs averaged 5.6 yards every time they touched the ball. So the NFL is a copycat league. We know that. And, and this now is the formula everyone will follow. Is, is, that, is that right? I mean, stack your blockers, runners, and receivers, and just go for it on offense? Well, our next guest... Our fellow Hall of Fame voter, John McLean, he covers a team that prides itself on its defense, and that's the Houston Texans. So if, if this is the new NFL where no defense is played and no defense is needed to win a championship, are the Texans doomed for the start in 2018? John, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. The Texans played defense this past season the way the Patriots and the Eagles played it terrible. They went from number one to last year when they lost so many starters to allowing more points than any in the league, and they're hoping to get back to where they were. Uh, and because uh, of what Romeo Cornell's back, Mike Brabel, of course, left, and Romeo, when he was there two years ago, 
he only lost one player, and that's J.J. Watt. But I'll tell you what, I love it when the Patriots in the Super Bowl because all their games are exciting. They're close. You know, history will look back at the score and go, well, it wasn't all that close. But, of course, we were there when you examine what happened. It was exciting, and it went right up until the end. John, our new Hall of Famers uh, and defensive legends, Robert Brazil, Brian Dawkins, Ray Lewis, and Brian Urlacher were introduced on the field before the game. Do you think they were all wincing at what they were seeing on the field? <laughs> I think the defensive, I think everybody's wincing when they see <laughs> look like a college game, the way Brady and Nick Foles went up and down the field. i tell you something that's interesting to me. And uh, I just got back from Minnesota, so today I spent a lot of time reading as much as I could on the internet and everybody's saying, Oh, the this is the way every team's gonna do the Eagle way. Well the Eagle way was to be very fortunate to have a great backup quarterback. If they didn't have a great backup quarterback they wouldn't be Super Bowl champions. So everything they else they did is great. But I don't think any anybody wants to batter themselves after the Eagles. They better get a backup quarterback like Nick Foles and you don't find those on every street corner. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. Remember, that was the Patriots way in 2001. Bledsoe goes down, and they put this kid in. <laughs> Lo and behold, he wins five Super Bowls. Anyway, uh, Goose mentioned Robert Brazil. You covered him with the Houston Oilers. You presented him last weekend to the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee, and you did one hell of a job, John. There was no you, pushback, no pushback at all on his candidacy. I mean, the conversation is very brief. So here's my question for you. Tell us why it took him. 29 years to finally get his bust as a senior candidate. I mean, what did the senior committee see in Brazil that the selection committee had been missing for almost three decades? Well, first of all, let me point out that Rick presented Jerry Kramer, did a tremendous job. You presented Bobby Beathard, did a fabulous job. And those three, our three guys, were voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And you know how rewarding that enormous responsibility is when we have it. And so I was just so excited for all three of them, and especially Dr. Doom, who, who, uh, when he was a modern candidate, I just couldn't get anybody excited about him. And then as the as the committee started to change, and more and more people started to talk about him, who game planned against him, who went against him, who played with him, uh, his greatness came out. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was six five, two fifty. He, he was drafted by Bum Phillips in a trade, one of the all-time great trades. Sid Gilman was the general manager, and he traded John Matuzak to Kansas City for nose tackle Curly Culp, who I think invented the position, and we put him in the Hall of Fame three years ago, and a number one pick that turned out to be Robert Brazil. <laughs> Bum Phillips drafted him. He was going to play a 3-4. He wanted that big, prototypical 3-4 outside linebacker who could run, cover, and also could stop the run and was a good pass rusher. And and the thing that, that helped me in the presentation to the seniors committee, and Rick was on it when we were in Canton in August, is I called Lawrence Taylor, and I've never said this publicly. I'll say it to you guys, and I'm going to write it tomorrow. Uh, last year, right before the induction weekend, I couldn't go. The Texans were in West Virginia training camp, and I told Elvin Bethay, the Oilers defensive end who's in the Hall of Fame that I wish I'd been able to go because I wanted to talk 
to Lawrence Taylor if he was there about Brazil and see what he thought about players like Kenny Houston, Joe DeLamalure, and Jack Ham saying he was LT before LT. And Elvin Bethea said, I'll get his number. I'll see if he'll talk to you. And so I thought that'd be the end of it. As soon as it's over, he calls me. I said, I got LT's number. He said, call him. I left him a message. He called me the next day. I wasn't available. He called back. And he said that he would not sign with his agent coming out of North Carolina, Gene Burrow, unless Gene found a way to introduce him to Brazil. And Brazil had already been playing six years, and so Brazil was Burrow's agent. So they flew to, to North Carolina, and Robert spent several hours with Lawrence Taylor, and Taylor told me, I patterned my game uh, after him. He motivated me, inspired me to play great, inspired me to play hard. He was me before me. And I thought that was about as good a thing as I could come up with. And I'm so happy that guys like uh, Kenny Houston, Ron Wolf, and especially Lawrence Taylor helped my presentation. And I wanted to thank everybody on the committee that voted for him. John, I think the Lawrence Taylor quote really put the, put the nail in the coffin. I mean, he was, that, that delivered it. Well, thank you. I, I was really happy he did it. And I told Robert, after we nominated him, I said, here's what I did. You need to make sure to thank him. And I reminded him again. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I'll be calling old Lawrence. <laughs> John, what was, your, what was your biggest surprise coming out of the Hall of Fame meeting Saturday? Uh, first of all, I was glad. Well, I was glad that Brian Dawkins got in because you guys know we always talk about there's not enough safeties. And there's right. a lot of safeties that that deserve to be in. I was talking to Bill Parcells three weeks ago for a story, and I asked him about the safeties, and he said, let me tell you one that should be in the Hall of Fame, and he went on and on about Leroy Butler and uh, how great he was. And so I was glad to see Dawkins, especially when Philadelphia was there. You know, that had nothing to do with our vote, but it was a nice dichotomy for them winning and him going in and everything Eagle-related. And then I was kind of surprised that Brian Erlacher went on the first ballot. I think he was deserving, but I was hoping an offensive lineman like Tony Pizzelli would have gone in because those linemen, it's tough. You know, we had how many? Five of them. And I'm guessing that they canceled each other out. And next year when we have three first-timers like Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, and Champ Bailey, if we put all them in on the first ballot, then there's it's getting tougher and tougher. So I thought Erlacher might wait a year since Ray Lewis was a lock and we would put in one of the offensive linemen. Hey, John, since you mentioned the Eagles uh, with Brian Dawkins, Carson Wentz put that team on a path to the Super Bowl in just the second season. Can Deshaun Watson do the same thing in Houston in 2018? What I saw from Deshaun Watson, and you guys did too, in his six starts, he averaged 34 points a game. In his last five starts, they averaged 39. And this is with players falling apart on defense with injuries. Offensive line was awful. And in the four games that he played with a healthy Will Fuller paired with DeAndre Hopkins, they averaged 40.5 points a game. He was on a pace for 43 touchdown passes, six rushing. And and for a team that hasn't, a city that has not had a good quarterback since Warren Moon, left after the 1993 season. You guys can imagine how fired up everybody is about him. But they didn't have a backup 
Tom Savage guys chance, couldn't play. They had to play T.J. Yates. Now they have two spots open. They better get them a backup. <laughs> John, last thing about the Texans. Do we ever see the, the same J.J. Watt that was Defense Player of the Year? Are we ever going to see him again? Rick, everybody would hope so. Like last year when he came back, everybody expected him to be Superman right off the bat, which would have not been fair considering he was coming off two back surgeries. And in the year before that, he had abdominal surgery in which they had he had things in his lower lower in his abdomen that had to be reattached that he said made him think he's never going to be able to play again. So he had the knee injury, the a fractured tibial plateau. So I would think if JJ, you know, he'll work as hard as he ever worked. But instead of being like a 20-sack guy, they could get eight or nine out of John McLean, thanks so much for stopping by. Let me just guess. You're happy to be back in Texas and out <laughs> of the Minnesota cold. I tell guess. you what, Clark and Rick, it's so humid here. It made me wish I was back in Minneapolis. Thank <laughs> you right. guys oh, very much. All right. Oh, Thank thanks, you. John. Thanks, John. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. And this, this is Dr. Data with our own Hall of Fame, Rick Dawson. Class of 2004. Now, Goose presented Jerry Kramer last week, as John Klain told you. And he wants to stay with the Green Bay Packers theme for this week's editorial. So, Goose, stay with it. Let her rip. Yes, sir. Can you enshrine too many players from one franchise in the Hall of Fame? That's the question that came up last week when those of us on the Hall of Fame Select Committee enshrined the 12th member of the 1960s Packers, guard Jerry Kramer. That's more than half of the starting lineup, plus the head coach from one team a team that won five championships in a span of seven years and went to six title games in a span of eight seasons. No team of any era has more players in Canton than those 1960s Packers. They have indeed been rewarded for their success. Should the committee now draw the line there with the Lombardi Packers? Well, ponder this. In 1969, the same Hall of Fame selection committee was commissioned to pick the 50, excuse me, the greatest players in the game's first 50 years. There were 45 players selected to that team, and 43 of them are now enshrined in Canton. Only two are not, and they both played for the 60s Packers, split in Boyd Dollar and tight end Ron Kramer. Dollar was selected to the 1960s All-Decade team as well, and Kramer would have been had the committee elected more than one tight end. Yet neither of those players has ever been discussed as a finalist for the Hall of Fame. If you are chosen as one of the best players in the game's first half century, don't you deserve a spin through the room as a finalist to determine if you are indeed Hall of Fame worthy? It took Kramer 45 years to get in. His teammate Dave Robinson, 34 years, and Henry Jordan, 21. The Hall of Fame is a process. Maybe Dowler and Ron Kramer deserve to be Hall of Famers. Maybe they don't. But they certainly deserve a few minutes in that room to start the process and have their cases heard, regardless of how many teammates have been enshrined. I couldn't agree with you more, Goose. Um, I guess my question would be, how come there's no complaint about, like, say, Steelers fatigue from the 1970s? They got a zillion players in. Or better yet, I got a better one for you. The Raiders from the 1970s, they had what? Like, what, 11 guys enshrined off a team that won the Super Bowl? Yeah, the only guy who's okay with that is Ron. I think there is Taylor fatigue. I think that's the reason L.C. Greenwood is, is standing at the steps and uh, Andy Russell Don, can't get in the door. Donnie Shell. And Donnie Shell. But the, the Raiders, I can't explain that. They, 11, they have two more Hall of Famers than the Steelers of the same decade, and the Steelers won three more Super Bowls. We'll have to ask Ron about that when he comes back. Yeah, and, and I'd compare him with, with the Dallas Cowboys, too. I mean, you have trouble getting Dallas Cowboys in from that 70s, right? I mean, yeah. Know, oh, two, the Drew only Pearson? two first-team All-Decade guys from the 70s, yeah. Drew Pearson yeah. and Cliff Harris. 
Well, goose, thanks. It's going to do it. Up next, we're going to visit with our old friend, and I use that term loosely. That'd be Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Gene Steratore, thanks again for the time and the memories. And one last tweet, please, if you will. That's the two Yes, sir. That means we're almost out of time. And once again, we're joined by Terrell Owens, favorite Hall of Fame voter. That'd be Matt Mayoko. The Goose, take us home with a two-minute drill. After watching the two offenses roll up almost 1,200 yards in the Super Bowl, is defense officially dead in the NFL? No, of course not. I mean, after all, according to Chris Collinsworth, there were only four legitimate pass completions in that game. (laughs) I agree. No, but the catch rule is. After watching the Super Bowl, please define the term catch for me. Hey. If the football passes through, naturally, the player's entire digestive system, it's a catch. <laughs> a catch? L. McPherson. Who would you rather have going forward, Jimmy Garoppolo or Tom Brady? Jimmy Garoppolo. He's still undefeated. <laughs> that's the homer vote. Tom Brady. That's also a homer vote. <laughs> when will the NFL return north for Super Bowl? That will be when the Arctic ice cap melts. So, uh, very soon. Uh, when the Inuits build a stadium in Anchorage, goes. Gene Steratore, Gene Hackman, or Mr. Green Jeans? Ooh, hold on a sec. I, I have this on my index card that's folded up, but I can't find it. <laughs> Gene Tierney. That would be the magnificent Gene. The gambling site Boveda has established a Patriots as a Super Bowl favorite for 2018. Who's your favorite? The Crimson Tide. <laughs> Anyone quarterback by Tom Brady, so yeah, the Patriots. Jerry Kramer became the 12th Packer elected to the Hall of Fame of the 60s Packers. Can we now close Canton's door on the Lombardi dynasty? Is anyone left? (laughs) Not unless you want to get Chuck Mercine in, Goose. With the election of Terrell Owens and Randy Moss, there are now 17 more wide receivers in the Hall of Fame than cornerbacks. Have these wideouts been putting up their gaudy numbers against air? Hey, now, don't go disrespecting air. Air (laughs) always has tight coverage, just not very good ball skills. (laughs) Hey, Goose, give the people what they want. It's the age of the Matador defense. There will be one seeding nominee for the class of 2019. Who will it be? I'm going with Rudy. (laughs) Ron Borges, but good luck finding him. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Bobby Beathard, Aaron Miller, Matt Mayoka, John McClain, John Turney, and Ken Summers for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, www.talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.